You know, uh, here on The Conversation, we've done a number of stories about 2020 being the International Year of the Nurse. The World Health Organization designated in a nod to Florence Nightingale, a trailblazer of modern nursing and proper sanitation. We thought that it was a good time to reach out to the CEO of Queen's Health Systems, Jill Hoggard-Green. She's proud of the fact that she's a nurse and now heads the state's trauma center and is in a position to improve health care in the islands for the short term and long term. I'm a nurse of 40 years. I actually graduated with my bachelor's degree in 1980. Uh, and I keep my license because that is the roots and what compels me to constantly focus on how can we improve? How can we improve health? How can we better meet the needs of the people we serve? And clearly the pandemic, um, this virus doesn't wait. It can be lethal. And for me and for everyone at Queens, for Queens, Queen Emma created this hospital to fight infectious diseases that were killing Native Hawaiians in the 1850s. So for us, it goes right to the core of our mission. So it's been an incredible experience, particularly because of the love and courage and creativity and compassion that I have seen with everyone that I'm working with here in Queens. And I can also say that about our government officials and the health systems in general. Unlike lots of places around the world and the country in particular, where you see real divisiveness, while we have frank and lively conversations with different opinions at times, everyone is leaning in. We're realizing this is about our ohanas, our families, our neighbors. It's a privilege to serve, and I take that very, very seriously, and I take it to heart. I knew when I was interviewing, I kept saying to colleagues, I'm, I've been in healthcare for 40 years, I've been in excellent health systems, but that love and compassion was greater than I had seen in any other health system. And then when I got here and realized that's also part of the culture and how we think about how we're connected to each other and connected to our land, it's, again, I use the word privilege in, in a way of I have deep respect for being a part of this community. Yeah, we are so fortunate to live here, uh, humbled by the beauty and I think the compassion that this community shares. You know, we, we are in in the safe travels mode in a state of recovery for our economy. We've heard the key to our economic health is our well-being. And we've had to have this balance where we've had to build our capacity in order to allow us to uh, kind of reopen our borders uh, to welcome people in. Uh, I support the Safe Travels program, and here's why. First, they really consulted us as clinicians and healthcare leaders. So as you think about testing people three days before they come, that actually will reduce the number of individuals walking through our doors if they did have COVID. It significantly reduces it. And it would actually be lower than the number in our community today. Now, that also means, and I'm very, very focused on this with all of us, this virus is no respecter of person. And we must, all of us, a visitor, all of us that live here, uh, we must be wearing our masks. So we all need to be doing, wearing our masks, keeping physical distance, and being vigilant about hand washing. And I also throw flu in there, and we'll come talk about that in a minute. Uh, everyone, visitors as well as all of us, if we do that, we can lead through this virus. If we don't, it is very easy for someone to get exposed and not know it uh, because they didn't have a mask on. 
So for me, I'm very supportive of safe travel. I think it's a safe program, but we've got to be vigilant about all of us wearing our masks, physical distancing, and then we can enjoy the aloha spirit that's here. Well, you talked about the flu season, and we are looking at the news headlines across the nation where we've got these hot spots, and the fear is that the, the virus will spread, the flu will spread. So having a flu season on top of coronavirus could be extraordinarily devastating to this community. So this is the time where all of us need to get our flu shot. If we were over 85 to 90 percent of us having our flu shot, that dramatically reduces uh, the pain and suffering that can happen uh, for an individual or for the community as a whole. So I strongly encourage that. Do it now. And then as it relates to coronavirus, we know that if we're wearing our masks, masks, that significantly decreases the potential for an exposure. And if we are more distant from each other, that does it as well. Masks also help reduce the spreading of flu. So if you've got your flu shot, you're wearing your mask, and your physical distancing, you're not only protecting yourself, you're protecting your ohana, you're protecting your family. Now, Queens just recently expanded with the new infectious disease unit. Can, can you talk about that? We want to always be able to serve each and every person. And our board has been quite amazing through this entire process. But as we went through from March to May, we learned a lot. And at that point, we said, we've got to strengthen our system and we need more negative pressure rooms and we actually need a whole unit that has negative pressure. And what negative pressure means, an AIIR environment is one where it's the highest standard to keep infection from the patient and the caregiver and appropriately filter out the infection that is uh, potentially in that environment. Our board at that point in time, back in May, then authorized $12 million to move forward with great speed to convert a unit that would expand 24 beds so that they could be in that protected environment, that AIIR environment. It's incredibly humbling to me that first with the board's support and then with our wonderful construction team, they made that happen in less than 100 days, and we've opened it. So we now have 24 more beds in addition to the already the beds that we had in, in the health system that are completely designed to care for individuals with an infectious disease, and it creates a safer environment for our caregivers as well. So the team has moved in. Uh, it's up and operating, and it has some very interesting and important, filt, uh, uh, important features in addition to the negative pressure rooms. It's built where in each room there is an ultraviolet cleaning system that if there's not a patient in it, it's automatically getting that ultraviolet cleaning. The restrooms are cleaned around the clock. As soon as you open the door, it stops. And then there's tremendous technology in the room that allows our patients to be able to talk to their family in a much more personal way, for telemedicine to be occurring. And all elements of the room have been designed to be have the best way of fighting any infection. And it can convert into an ICU. So it strengthens our capacity to care, and it strengthens the safety to care. Earlier this year, there was a concern that we didn't have enough health care workers, and we did have to bring in some traveling nurses at one point when we saw our numbers tick up. What's the snapshot there? Yes, we had 
during the, the peak of the surge in August, I called the governor, I talked with our health and human services teams, and HIEMA, they all coordinated to help us get access to additional ICU nurses that came on the ground and really provided exceptional relief to our caregivers. And we are so grateful to both our state leaders as well as our federal leaders for supporting that. Now, we all learned from that across all of our health systems. And one of the things we learned from the past surge is there are hospital beds in many hospitals that are just not staffed. And had those been staffed with talented nurses and teams, that we would have been able to care for greater numbers. So with that learning, the hospital association, uh, Hawaii Association of Healthcare, went and got a support of over 100 caregivers that are coming on island, and we have some of them already starting with us, but they'll be with several different hospitals, allowing us all to increase our capacity so that um, we're prepared. We learn every day, uh, we strengthen every day, and that will assure that our caregivers have additional support as we face the fall season. So as always, Queens is here to care for each and every person, whether you're a resident or whether you're a traveler. We have great systems right now to provide support to you and make sure that you get to your highest level of function. We also work then um, in terms of monitoring and supporting individuals after they're discharged. I am inspired by the courage and the creativity of our team. They are deeply committed, and during surges, they're caring for many patients, and they are incredibly important important, high priority for us to make sure that we can keep them resilient. Uh, they need breaks. They need your love and support, which they feel as a community. So for us, that was essential. And back to our board, they said to me very early, you make sure that we're doing everything we can for our caregivers, make sure that we are caring for them well, and we're doing our very best and continue every day to, to work on ways to, to strengthen them. And your, again, love and support from their neighbors makes a big difference. And where do you stand on, I guess, capacity building for local nurses, for our local graduates of the nursing schools? I'm a strong proponent, and I, this has been my, a theme for me for my whole career. Uh, we have to build the next generations. When you look at uh, nurses, uh, there are many of us that are over 50. And when we have to assure that we are creating the right environments and nurturing and educating and supporting them. So one of our major strategies that our board is supporting is, I'll describe it as investing in our next generation, whether it's helping through school, whether it's creating the right environment when they graduate, making sure that they can see a lifelong career here on the islands with us at Queens. All of that is very, very important. That was Jill Hawkard-Green, CEO of Queens Health Systems. She has a background in nursing and brings a fresh perspective to the medical center. She took over for Art Ushijima, who retired last year after 30 years of service. Support for Hawaii Public Radio comes from the Scheidler College of Business at UH Manoa, offering a distance EMBA in travel industry management, scheidler.hawaii.edu. 
You are back with the conversation. And you know, uh, the weekend COVID-19 case numbers from the Big Island race some eyebrows when they exceeded Oahu's numbers. Officials are hoping to stem community spread as the island begins welping, welcoming visitors and hoteliers start to call workers back in anticipation of more bookings. We checked in with the general manager of the Maunalani Resort, Sanji Hulagali, about preparing for its mid-November opening. We've been working really closely with the state and we've also been working closely with the county. There's a lot of us involved in different discussions and initiatives and every day is a new day. But that's kind of how we are in, in, in this time and in this period. And I think you've got to be nimble, flexible, agile, all the things which we're not. Some of us are not familiar, some of us are, some of us just have to learn a few different traits. Talk about the challenges of marketing, because, you know, we've had the reopening as a moving target. You folks just put in a whole bunch of money, you know, to renovate the property, right? And things just got interrupted this year. First of all, the biggest roller coaster for us has been really, you know, we've opened this beautiful property, $200 million we spent on the renovation. We bought all our amazing employees back who were laid off or away from work last year because they were waiting for us to reopen. And three months later, we had to, we had to close. And Maunalani has been a, obviously a special place for many people, and it's in the hearts and minds of many travelers who are generational. It's not just, you know, employees who live here and work with us, whose, you know, kids and moms and dads and, and grandparents have, have worked for us. It's, it's also been guests who've come here and, and some loving memories of Maunalani and, and the spirit of Kalihui Puar and all the staff who are connected to them. So... I think there's a deeper connection there. You know, our excitement is really around the reopening. It's funny because you close a hotel, you open a hotel, and now you close the hotel again, and then you reopen it. We're just so excited to have our employees come back and, and to keep them safe. You know, we obviously looked at different measures of revisiting pretty much all our protocols, obviously compliance with the state and the county, but also going over and beyond in really taking care of our employees, but, but also our guests as well. From a guest perspective, we want to keep it as seamless as possible. I think something which I think, you know, you come to Hawaii, you're, you're coming on vacation, you spend a lot of money, even if you're, you're a couple or, or a family or a generational family, you're spending a lot of money to come and stay here. So the testing is super important. I think the state has really done a great job in, in really trying to get different variations of providers. We've partnered, collaborated, I should say, with, with a company called Vault, which we've done a lot of beta testing, and they have a great customer service. It's, it's a very quick, seamless process of testing. It's also one of the very first saliva tests for PCR, so we're very, very happy. They work with Hawaiian Airlines as well, and as you know, that whole intrusive swab testing is a little bit scary. I've done it now quite a few times, but the saliva test is, is, is so much more easier. You do it online. You check in and they send you the kit and then you get it done and you have this amazing customer service through Zoom with their doctors. You send it back, seal the box and, and then you send it back and within 24 hours you get an update of your results. So that's been really positive from a guest perspective. Otherwise it could be super complicated and people kind of get deterred by not wanting to go through the whole process. That Zoom visual then is kind of the, the safeguard the checks and balance to make sure that you're the person that's taking the test. Yeah, so you have this physician who's actually on the other side in front of the physician. You've got to seal the box. You you, uh, you do the saliva test into this device and then put it in the box and you actually, um, off it goes. 
uh, with the courier. So it's a pretty straightforward process. And within 24 hours, you get an electronic result which gives you the opportunity to be in compliance with all the airlines as well and entry into Hawaii. There is a second test. There's an antigen test, which happens right now. So every guest who comes right now, even if you've done a vault test, you would have to do an antigen test at this juncture at the airport. And that worked out really well. And we've been working with, with a couple of partners out in, in the airports to see how that has been sort of forming. And they, they all seem very positive. Now, that might actually change that whole process. We hear with the mayor, he might revisit that process. So we will wait to hear what the latest update on that is. There is a concern, I think, with some of the false positives that have come through. Right, right. So there's false positives so that sort of created a, a little bit of concern. There's also some discussion on actually having testing sites throughout the island. So you could maybe check into your hotel, but then after a couple of days, you actually have another test within. But again, that's still up in the air as to how that will unveil, and so we'll wait to hear. But uh, but the key is to be to be agile, to make it seamless for the guests, also seamless for the employees. We're also partnering with, with a company which would test all our employees and have more of a screen test philosophy, which is all about testing employees as much as every three or four days. Now, um, when did so you call your employees back? We've already started calling them back. We've already started preparing the resort and, and having the resort ready for guests. So, you know, as you know, it takes about a month to, to get these beautiful resorts back up in line. So we're aiming for a November 15th opening date. We'll soft open on November 7th. But in reality, November 15th, we, you know, we have some good pent-up demand and travelers coming in and stay with us. So you aren't planning to bring everybody back as far as the staff, just it's kind of a rolling thing based on occupancy? Absolutely, yeah. It'll be based on sort of an accordion style of having, as we get more compression and, and more business, we'll bring in more staff. But we definitely have, we're going to bring back our team members, the core team, to, to get the hotel up and running. And the key with all the employees, and we've got some amazing, incredible team members who work here, and I think the philosophy has always been, you know, it's going to be different. It's going to be, you know, wearing masks, restaurants wearing gloves, changing gloves, every table we touch. We've had the wonderful canoe house, which has been open now for right through the pandemic, which has been really well received by the community and supported by them. We've had some great learning how you operate it. But we also have a beautiful sports club, and that has been really busy with the tennis and, and, and all the fitness and the swimming. And so just learning how you operate in a world of COVID-19, I think, is, is really important with the staff. It's different because you have to wear masks, eye contact, your smile has to come through the mask uh, or your eyes. And in my case, uh, no one can see uh, see my how my hair rises because I don't have any hair. I'm bald. <laughs> But it's a lot of fun. But everyone's in such great spirit as we have we see employees coming back. And they know it's a new day. It's a new day with a new way of trying to be the best they can and, and create that amazing aloha spirit and the Hawaiian hospitality, which people are known for. So I think it's really good news in how we sort of forecasting as to how we're open. But I think it's going to be great. It's going to be building confidence of the traveler and building confidence of our travel advisors and our partners and our agencies all over the world, and especially you know, on the mainland, to be able to tell them that you know we're really putting our best foot forward. That was a conversation we had with Mount Alani Resort General Manager Sanjeev Hulagali.
we were talking about the planned November 15th reopening of the Big Island property and a new pre-travel spit test being offered to guests. This is a conversation on listener-supported Hawaii Public Radio. Today, astronomer Christopher Phillips joins HPR's Dave Lawrence to recap ongoing drama in the asteroid belt. Here's your Monday Stargazer. Stargazer time, our weekly look into the massive universe surrounding our tiny and very troubled planet, as usual, turning to the expertise of Christopher Phillips, and we happen to have him on the line right now. Hey, Chris, welcome back. What do we have in store this week? Hey, Dave, good to be back. So this week, stargazers, Jupiter and Saturn can still be seen close to the moon at around about 8 p.m. The moon itself will be approaching full this week, so stargazing for those faint objects in the heavens is going to be quite challenging. And I understand you've got a little recap on that uh, breathtaking adventure to the asteroid. Yes, drama in the asteroid belt this week as NASA's OSIRIS-REx spacecraft undertook a daring series of maneuvers to collect surface material from an asteroid known as Bennu. The sample collection marked the highlight of a four-year journey to the asteroid by this intrepid robotic explorer. The goal of the mission is to collect samples that can be returned to Earth and will be the first U.S. mission to achieve this goal. The only other spacecraft that have achieved such a feat are Hayabusa 1 and 2, launched by the Japanese Space Agency. This is a fascinating mission. So exactly how much material was collected? It should have managed to score about two and a half ounces of surface material. Now, this might seem like crumbs, but the information contained in this small amount of asteroid regolith is priceless. Asteroids are essentially floating time capsules. Their surfaces have recorded the chemical and material history of the solar system throughout its ages. And that's kind of a history book, if you will, into how things were formed with all that information. Indeed. We will have an astonishingly detailed history of our cosmic neighborhood and even gain some insights into how life may have arose on the Earth. And talk about the, uh, the nature of this could have been a pretty risky mission and a lot could have gone wrong. Is it a one-shot deal? Give us a little context. Well, Osiris used nitrogen gas to blast away at the surface before scooping up the material. The spacecraft actually carried three canisters of gas just in case the first one didn't work. Also, there was obviously the risk of collision with the asteroid, but thankfully it all went as planned. And what's the return trip like? Well, the sample return is expected to come home on September 24, 2023, so not that long at all, really. Oh, just a couple years, we got to keep this story fresh in our mind. <laughs> <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> it's Christopher Phillips and another fun stargazer. Appreciate it. You're welcome, Dave. And I'm Dave Lawrence. You can find Stargazer at hawaiipublicradio.org. Support for Stargazer comes from Ferraro Choi, architects for Maui's Wailuku Civic Complex, committed to environmentally sustainable architecture and interior design. FerraroChoi.com. You know, joining us for today's reality check is Honolulu Civil Beat reporter Kevin Dayton. He has a story about a federal probe into the United Public Workers Union. Good morning, Kevin. Good morning. How are you, Kevin? Good, I'm good. Now, for uh, let our listeners know, because UPW is kind of a blue-collar government workers' union. Correct. They, they've got members, a membership of about 13,000 statewide. Uh, most of them are blue-collar workers for state or county, um, and then also there are the corrections officers for the state 
And they also have about 1,000 private sector employees who are also on the union role. Now, it's interesting that, you know, you got wind of this uh, uh, federal pro because, you know, recently we've seen the feds uh, go after, I think, uh, other union officials. You know, there's the ILWU uh, case, and I think there, gosh, there's IBEW as well. Right, I was going to say IBEW, yeah. And this this one appears to have grown out of um, some internal union controversies. There was a um, complaints from members that resulted in an AFSCME. Uh, geez, i got to look and see what that stands for. American Federation of State, County, and Municipal Employees uh, Audit of the Union Finances for two years. And that ended up turning up uh, a number of, of irregularities, uh, things that, that AFSCME became concerned about. And from there, that led on to a union trial um, that it resulted in the removal of Dayton Nakani-Luo and uh, um, Joni Endo, uh, who uh, basically their job titles, let me flip real quickly here, they were, um, Dayton would be the state director, and Endo was known as the administrator of fiscal and membership services. Currently, both of them have filed a lawsuit now um, alleging that their rights were violated in the terminations. So what were the kind of expenditures that, um, you know, got the eye of the feds? There were a, a bunch of things, actually. Just to give you the short list, um, one of the things that were cited, were, some of the things that were cited was a 21800 in credit card charges um, that lacked, lacked documentation. That was specifically uh, relevant to Dayton Nakanelua. And then another 26659 for meals on one card during a two-year period. And the auditors basically complained that it was unclear what union business was involved. Another transaction that they flagged um, was a little bit more complicated. That's a $165,000 check, which was a down payment or an installment on uh, what was to be a documentary about the union. Um, that was that had some internal controversy because uh, the president of the union declined to sign the check, and then Dayton Nakanilua co-signed it himself. And uh, you know, apparently that was that was flagged by the auditors as well. Yeah, I, I happened to be out in the field uh, when that crew was out filming a, a cleanup at one of the schools, and, and uh, you know, I talked with them recently, and I know they were kind of surprised to hear, you know, about the investigation, um, and, you know, the project was basically up in the air, not just because of the funding, but because of COVID. Right, right. And what, what this seems to have done is it has pulled in um, investigators from the U.S. Department of Labor, the Internal Revenue Service, and also the state attorney general's office has had some level of participation in this as well. Um, what, they, what they've done is they've subpoenaed thousands of documents from the union. Uh, that would include documents such as uh, credit card transactions, credit card records, uh, contracts. They've, they've also subpoenaed um, uh, records related to a various relationships that the union has with a number of law firms in town. Uh, there has, had been a question in some of the auditing uh, records that Perhaps the union did not have contracts, formal contracts with the law firms, but they had paid some extraordinary amounts um, in the millions of dollars to the to the law firms, and that was being questioned by the auditors as well. And did you get any uh, comment back from the Labor Department or uh, State Attorney General? Uh, no, well, it's, this is U.S. Department of Labor. Mm -hmm. They've declined comment. Uh, State Attorney General declined comment, but that's to be expected. They don't, in, in normal normal situations, they will not confirm or deny whether an investigation is is undergoing, is ongoing. Excuse me. Um, so there hasn't been a lot coming from the authorities that are investigating. Um, we did get some uh, when Dayton Nakani Lua was removed. 
Um, he was replaced by an administrator, Liz Ho, over at UPW, and she essentially confirmed uh, the very sort of voluminous request for documents that the feds have made um, and, and said that they are complying as best they can. Now, uh, the one big, I guess, scandal was, uh, gosh, years ago uh, with Gary Rodriguez when he was removed. 2002, correct. That was, you know, one of the most famous cases, corruption cases, I think, in Hawaii history. It certainly ranks up near the top. Um, Mr. Rodriguez had been, uh, he ended up pleading guilty to a number of federal charges uh, and was, uh, he ended up serving, I believe it's two years in federal prison. Um, and it, what, what happened in the wake of that, um, after he was removed, an administrator was appointed by AFSCME and then Dayton Nakanilua, who was very close to Gary Rodriguez ended up being voted in by the membership as the new state director. And so he essentially took over from, from Gary. Um, and, it, you know, it's unfortunate that the union is back in this position again. Right. Well, we'll have to see where this probe goes. But thanks so much, Kevin. Thank you. Take care. That, was, that was Kevin Dayton with today's Reality Check. Uh, to find his story, go online to civilbeat.org. Throughout the week, we'll be taking time to examine issues highlighted in Heilonumoku, Hawaii State of the Environment Report. It translates to an island's update. Today, we hear from Phil Acosta, the executive director of the Aloha Harvest, whose mission involves saving food from being wasted. What are the lessons learned from COVID-19 about our food resiliency? We averaged anywhere from 1 million to 1.5 million pounds of food a year that equates to about 125,000 um, pounds of food that we rescue a month. And pre-COVID, again, most of that came from our, our hotels and restaurants, caterers even, and bakeries, um, just, you know, excess food that they, they, they had on hand that they couldn't serve or sell. Um, obviously, when um, COVID hit, we had a huge influx from these same donors, and we were rescuing literally tons of food fresh produce and fresh food that, you know, just came from these uh, canceled events that, you know, had nowhere to go. But beyond that, you know, all that has dried up. And the interesting thing is our inventory hasn't, you know, actually even doubled and tripled in some instances. In some months, we're processing over 300,000 pounds just in August, actually. We just surpassed 400,000 pounds of food that we processed. And that's a, a mix of about 60 to 65 percent of rescued food, which is still quite considerable. And there is an increasing amount of uh, food that we are buying and purchasing locally from our farmers, uh, from our local businesses, and things that we're also procuring through the USDA program. Can you talk about the food that you didn't rescue? Was there a lot that either got dumped, you know, whether it's milk or, you know, other things, just because right. we didn't have uh, a large enough distribution you know, infrastructure in place? Yes, and I hear of things. I don't have any concrete numbers as far as things that did not go, um, uh, that were not captured, that eventually went to waste. But again, pre-COVID, looking at the data that we uh, we have from the city and nationally, really we're only capturing about 2% of the potential food that is wasted. 
out there. And if we could only capture about 20, 20 to 25% of the, the food that, the, that can become waste, we could really make a huge dent in um, the, you know, addressing the hunger issues and really eliminating the, uh, the hunger um, and food insecurity that um, many families face. But, uh, you know, in, in the light of COVID, I think there's, there was a lot of people that stepped up and were able to capture that, but still, there's still quite considerable amount that we weren't able to. And so we are looking at more, you know, long-term, long-term solutions that allow us to uh, collect and aggregate more of that food. So, you know, take us from incrementally from 2 to 5%, maybe eventually to 10% in the next 3 to 5 years. That'll make a huge difference in just the landscape in Hawaii and our food system and, you know, becoming more sustainable and resilient. Where does the dumped food go? Does it go into the uh, landfill? It's, in, it's interesting, actually, both. both. Um, one of the things, one of the common things where um, uh, we're, we're yet untapped is the consumer market. You know, folks that might go to a big box store or tend to stock up on things and they don't use up all their other food that ends up going to waste and obviously the uh, the waste from the residential a lot of it goes to the landfill some of the um, or to the um uh, the incinerators um so some of that does get burned but eventually the ash that comes out of that does end up in the landfill so it's a, and in the uh on the commercial side where there are restaurants and hotels that are paying uh tipping fees or you know hauling fees to get these things their excess, which includes quite a bit of food waste. That some of that goes into the landfill as well as the incinerator um, um, as well. And so there's a little bit of both, but eventually everything, whether it gets burned initially or gets uh, buried, it eventually does end up in the landfill. And as you know, you know we we have a very finite um, uh, use of the one major landfill that we have here on Oahu. And um, you know I'm not sure what the what the situation is like on the neighbor islands, but I'm assuming they're uh, dealing with the same thing as well, where, you know, there's really so much potential that we could divert, you know, that, that makes a lot of difference in just the environmental um, impact as well as the economic impact of all that um, untapped resources. And what have you had to do in order to meet the demand? Uh, have you had to get more trucks or hire more people? Yes and yes. <laughs> and more of you know everything else. Just I think we've had to. I think pivot is one of those uh, you know overused. It was sexy at one point, and <laughs> it's become overused. And you know now, but we did have to really refocus our resources um, to um, really to address the more immediate needs uh, in COVID as people were laid off or furloughed and eventually laid off. And we've had to even um, scale up. So when um, when I first, um, you know, uh, took on the position as executive director for a little harvest just a year ago, um, I had a staff of nine, including myself. Uh, right now, with um, a couple of uh, contractors that we have on hand as well, we're up to 18. So we've doubled that. We just picked up a new delivery van just uh, last month, and we have three delivery trucks um, on its way. I'm hoping to get that here in the next uh, by or you know, sometime end of year. And so we've had to really scale up our, our staff, our, our fleet. Uh, we've had to um, rent out a storage space for dry goods, for chill storage and freezer storage. And so we are now actually operating out of four, uh, di- you know, the 
separate areas. And what we'd like to do moving forward is to really establish a, a site, a you know, food resilience hub, that we can aggregate more of the excess food, not just in times of crisis, but you know, just in, in blue sky days as well. Um, we can definitely serve more communities, but establishing this food resilience hub in a disaster preparedness center where everything is consolidated in one space can be better prepared when the next crisis hits. You know, a couple of things that we, you know, we found there were some opportunities that um, that kind of came up during during this time where we actually had a few farms where we, we've had relationships with some of our local farms before where they would donate some of their excess things to us. But, you know, at the onset of the pandemic, we had an influx of that where their distribution channels basically dried up overnight. And so... Some, not all, and, you know, just, just a few actually reached out to us and offered to, you know, for us to rescue some of that excess produce. So we've had a chance to kind of uh, run this proof of concept of gleaning and volunteer harvest, which has, you know, been um, successful. We, we were able to harvest with help of volunteers at, um, at two farms over 2,300 pounds of, you know, fresh leafy greens, and that's a lot. If you're talking about lettuce and, and these uh, leafy vegetables, 2,300 pounds is quite a bit. And we've had an um, opportunity to excess, uh, to rescue excess and off-grade produce from uh, seven other farms, totaling over 230,000 pounds. So really looking at that where there's the potential on, you know, in local, in regular growing cycles where there's a lot of um, excess of off-grade, I think that's a great opportunity for us to to tap into where we can repurpose or create value-add products at a much lower price point. And if we can support the local farmers, we can support the local communities, I think it's a win-win all around. So that's something that, you know, we've found as an opportunity that came up during um, this pandemic that we'd like to pursue moving forward. We want to build uh, better relationships with our local uh, farming and ag industry. That was Phil Acosta, Executive Director of Aloha Harvest, talking about how we can improve our food resiliency here in Hawaii.